ICU Rounds is a production of the Society of Critical Care Medicine. This is IC Rounds. My name's Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery and director of the Burns Center at the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. Hey everybody, welcome back. I want to talk today about the topic of adrenal insufficiency or the measurement of uh, cortisol in critically ill patients. This is something I see done on a regular basis, and when you start asking people, what is it that you're doing and why are you doing it, people are often unable to give me what I would consider to be a uh, satisfactory answer. So the question becomes, what does a patient who is adrenal insufficient look like from a clinical perspective inside the intensive care unit who would be clinically hypotensive and resistant to volume resuscitation and are dependent on the use of vasopressors? Now, there were two studies that were performed in the 1990s that showed the use of stress-dose hydrocortisone that they decreased the duration in, uh, of vasopressor therapy and improved the overall shock reversal. And these were the papers done by uh, Bullard and colleagues that were appeared in Critical Care Medicine back in 1998, Volume 26, that was pages 645 to 650, as well as the paper by uh, Briegel and colleagues um, that was also in Critical Care Medicine, 1999, Volume 27, pages 723 to 732. Now, in 2002, there was a large multi-center randomized trial that looked at did steroids improve patients who had septic shock and who were believed to have renal insufficiency. And this is classically known as the Anon study. This was published in JAMA. And what they determined from that is they defined um, a relative adrenal insufficiency as an increase in the total cortisol of less than nine in response to a dose of 250 micrograms of cortisone. So this is your ACTH stimulation test. Well, this is, remains highly debated as to whether what is the right response. I mean, do you have a, a, a delta of less than nine? Does that make you adrenal insufficient? But other authors have argued that if your total cortisol level is less than 18 in the face of critical illness, that would be adrenal insufficiency. Uh, if your response to a cortisone uh, stimulation test was less than 9, that would make you adrenal insufficient. Uh, or if you had a total random cortisol of less than 25, that would make you um, uh, adrenal insufficient. So clearly there is no accepted uh, definition of what this really means. And so when you look at something like the surviving sepsis guidelines, the surviving sepsis guidelines say basically that if you feel that the patient is adrenal insufficient and they're non-responsive to fluid and vasopressors, that they would not even do an assay that they would start the patient on steroids. So there's a tremendous amount of confusion as to what really is uh, someone who's adrenal insufficient in the face of critical illness. Now, I want to change gears just for a second. I want to talk about calcium. I want you to imagine for a second that you are taking care of a patient and somebody says the patient has a low calcium level. Would you just treat based on this particular level? Well, you would probably, the next question you would ask is, well, what is the ionized calcium? Well, what does that have to do with it? The total calcium is low. Well, calcium is bound to albumin. And so 
what we're really looking at is the free calcium. That is the calcium that's floating around that is biologically relevant, that's biologically active. So if you have somebody who has a low albumin, they may have a low total calcium, but their ionized calcium would be fine and you wouldn't replace that calcium. This is something that we're all taught in medical school and it's something that we all kind of torment our, our third-year medical students, you know, kind of give them the bait and switch, say, well, total calcium's low and without even, you know, talking about what the ionized calcium is, somebody says, well, I would replace the calcium. That's the point of, of the educational interaction there is to say calcium is both a free or an ionized form and a protein-bound form, and it's the, the free protein form that we're concerned about. That somebody, for instance, who is if their total calcium is low because of hypoalbuminemia, that's not the relevant number we want to look at. We want to take that same kind of paradigm and apply that to cortisol. Cortisol exists in several forms. Some of it bound to protein and some of it is basically the free form. And when you look at how these numbers are divided, they're rather surprising. Only 10% of cortisol is present in the free form. 20% of albumin, excuse me, 20% of cortisol is actually bound to albumin. And 70% is bound to cortisol binding globulin. Now, the assays that we use when we measure these kind of random cortisol levels measure the total hormone concentration. That means it measures the serum-free cortisol plus that that's bound to protein, that being the protein being the albumin as well as the cortisol-binding globulin. And let's remember that number that we said, what percentage of the albumin is present in the free form? 10%. And it is that 10%, that free albumin, that experts in this field believe is the cortisol that's relevant to physiological activity. That's the cortisol that we're interested in, not the other 90% that's protein-bound. Being bound to the protein means it's not physiologically available to exert its uh, desired effect. Now, since 90% of the cortisol is bound to these proteins, therefore it's reasonable to conclude that if you change the concentrations of these proteins, you're going to change the total cortisol concentration. But you may not have any significant physiological impact on that 10% free cortisol level. Now, there have been authors who have tried to get their brain around this because, for instance, if you take stressors such as somebody who's had an operation, the actual concentration of the cortisol binding globulin actually decreases by roughly 50%. And as we've said that, you know, roughly 70% of cortisol is bound to cortisol binding globulin. So as the cortisol binding globulin decreases, uh, and if you saw a increase on your total cortisol level, that would increase by say 55 to 100%. Now there are other types of markers that people have tried to determine free cortisol levels, such as something called the free cortisol index, calculated free cortisol levels, uh, and those will increase, say, by 130 to 600 percent in the times of stress. So as we have changes in the concentration of these different binding proteins, this will affect the concentration of the serum total cortisol, and this makes the interpretation of these tests reasonably difficult. Now, there, there are other, other influences, for instance, uh, in the case of estrogen. Estrogen raises the concentration of uh, corticosteroid binding globulin. And in doing so, 
uh, as it does this, it's able to bind more of a cortisol. So if you had a cortisol of 20, but your cortisol binding or corticosteroid binding globulin is increasing, that would mean a greater percentage of that 20 would be bound to the protein and therefore not free to exert its physiological effects. So what that means in this particular case is that the total cortisol level would be uh, normal, but there would be uh, without really altering the concentration of the free hormone, uh, which would be free to exact, uh, exert its effects. And uh, these, these effects uh, have been well-established and, and well-published. So if we recognize that an increase in the corticosteroid binding globulin will increase the total cortisol level, and this has been well-established, then the converse is also true, that we can have a decrease in something like the cortisol binding globulin level and that will result in a decrease in the total cortisol level, but may not negatively impact that free cortisol level. Well, what are some of the patients, what are the, what are the conditions that can result in a fall in the serum corticosteroid binding globulin concentration? Well, those are things that's rec it's well recognized. It's been published in patients who have sepsis, those patients with trauma, and those patients who have undergone major surgery. You will see a decrease in that corticosteroid binding globulin. Now, we go back to our example using calcium. We've said before that, you know, we would not look at whether somebody needs calcium replacement based on the total calcium. We have, and we, there are cheat sheets, for instance, by using the albumin, uh, by changes in the albumin to basically take that uh, total calcium and correct it to what we feel would be an ionized calcium or free calcium. Or we could measure just the ionized calcium. And there are methods that we can kind of cheat and figure out what would the corrected cortisol level be or the free cortisol. And the way they went about doing this was taking basically the serum total cortisol concentration. They divided that by the serum corticosteroid binding globulin concentration. And they used this as a surrogate as to basically what would the corrected or free cortisol level be. Now be mindful that we said that 70% of the cortisol is bound to corticosteroid or cortisol binding globulin and that 20% is bound to albumin. So if you also saw a decrease in your albumin, you would also see a decrease in your total, your, your total um, cortisol level. Now, if we look at the patients that we take care of on a daily basis, those who are critically ill, we, we all know that people who are critically ill have low albumins. Uh, in fact, it would be, we would almost look at it as a, an aberrancy to see somebody in the ICU who had a normal albumin level. So we recognize that. Also, patients who are critically ill uh, also have decreased concentrations of corticosteroid binding globulin. Therefore, if we just measured uh, total serum cortisol concentrations, we will basically be misled and uh, assume that the patient's total cortisol is less than that's actually reflected in the total cortisol level and assume that somebody is adrenal insufficient when in reality they're not. Particularly because what really defines somebody as adrenal insufficient, those, those uh, values have been basically defined in people who have normal adrenal function and also have normal levels of binding proteins. So to evaluate this study back, way back in 2004, and I say that because, you know, this is not something that's new. This was published in 2004. There was an article in the New England, New England Journal of Medicine by uh, Hamarian and colleagues, and they basically went out to evaluate what was the serum-free cortisol pay, uh, levels in critically ill patients. And what these authors showed is what basically we're predicting based on what we now know about how cortisol binds with proteins such as cortis uh, corticosteroid binding globulin 
and albumin that in in faces of critical illness when these binding proteins are decreased that you will have the presence uh, it'll look like you have a low serum total cortisol levels and it showed in fact in their study that 39% of patients with low albumin levels would have been misdiagnosed as being adrenal insufficient based on the total cortisol levels 39% the levels in those patients appear to be low due to the hypoproteinemia their free cortisol levels seem to have been preserved and may, in fact, have been elevated. Now, why do I say this? Is Well, when you're taking care of, say, a critically ill burn patient or surgical patient or trauma patient, what are the many of the things that we are looking at to improve quality and therefore survival in, in these critically ill patients? Things like infections, pneumonia, central venous catheter infections, deep venous thrombosis, issues regarding wound healing. Do steroids positively impact any of these problems? No. Steroids, in fact, make a lot of those problems worse, particularly things like DVTs, wound healing, and infections. Uh, if you're doing a, a general surgery patient and somebody has a, a, an anastomosis, you know, the surgeons basically, their, their toenails will begin to curl when you talk about giving somebody steroids. The question is, are these steroids indicated? And based on these evaluations, if you understand the physiology of how cortisol is handled, if you understand that cortisol what is what we really need to evaluate is the free cortisol. And when you're doing these random cortisol levels on people, it doesn't tell you anything about the patient's ability to respond. And just because it's low or you think it's low, what is the value of the other proteins? Have you measured a cortisol, a, a corticosteroid binding globulin? Have you looked at the albumin? Is, if the albumin is, say, 1.8, would you really expect now, knowing that 20% of your cortisol is bound to albumin, would you really expect that you would find something uh, such as a normal cortisol level? Of course you wouldn't. To me, it's interesting everybody is very quick to point out the Anon study, but then people are mindful and, and seem to forget the outcomes of the corticus uh, trial. And when you look at the Anon study, this was, you know, talk about an issue with patient selection. Uh, those patients were non-responsive to fluids or vasopressors for a period of 24 hours. That really is selecting patients who are truly at physiological exhaustion. Just because you start somebody on, uh, you give somebody a couple liters of fluid and start them on Levofed, uh, and their levofed's at 15 for an hour or two. That does not necessarily mean that they are uh, adrenal insufficient. These are people who are dependent on vasopressors for a protracted period of time. But in reality, it's people who have been non-responsive to fluid and vasopressors. So in summary, you know, during critical illness, glucocorticoid, uh, glucocorticoid secretion will increase, but this increase may not be discernible when only the serum total cortisol concentration is being measured. Be mindful that when you look at that uh, free cortisol level, you are looking at the total cortisol level. And then the next question I would likely ask you is, well, what is the patient's albumin level? And, you know, what is your thought about if the albumin level is markedly low, do you think that the corticosteroid binding globulin protein level is also low? And if those are low, you know, what is your free cortisol level? And if your free, your free cortisol level, based on the findings of this particular study, would indicate that in a large percent, your free cortisol level would be normal and that 40% of the patients... 40%, roughly 39, but 40, 39, 40% of the patients that you think would require steroids don't. And so therefore you're going to be in that 39% of patients, you are going to be administering a medication, which we know has profound negative impact in regards to major concerns in all intensive care patients, namely things like wound healing, infections, and development of deep venous thrombosis. 
You have been listening to the podcast ICU Rounds. My name is Jeff Guy. Thanks for listening. Just a reminder that uh, you can follow me at Twitter and iCriticalCare. If you find the podcast useful, we certainly appreciate positive feedback on our iTunes website. That certainly helps with our ratings, and, and we find that very helpful. Uh, remember that this is now a podcast associated with the Society of Critical Care Medicine. The Society also has other podcasts, the iCriticalCare podcast, which is a discussion format that uh, is focused on articles uh, that are in the journal Critical Care Medicine. If you are subscribed to the journal Critical Care Medicine, check out the iPad app uh, for that. It's uh, very interactive. It's very easy to navigate and to read the articles on the iPad. And then very shortly, we're going to have you, uh, the link will be there, so you'll be able to look at the table of contents and you'll be able to sample the written article. And then if a podcast is available, you'll hear our discussion with the author regarding their findings or challenges with the, the research or where they think this is going. It's an exciting opportunity, and I think it adds a lot of value to the journal. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. The statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of the authors and participants and do not apply an opinion of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, its officers, or members.